Now, this week I saw a cartoon of a cat, and the cat was doing what cats usually do, which is nothing and just sleeping. And so someone came up and asked the cat, well, what are you doing? And the cat replied, well, nothing. I'm a cat. Um, cats always do nothing. So the person asked, well, when are you going to get up? And the cat said, well, you know, the hardest part about doing nothing is you never know when you're finished. <laughs> right? Now, apathy and, and doing nothing, it's adorable in a cat, right? And if you have a cat, then that's part of their charm. It's what makes them a good pet. An apathetic cat can be a joy, but an apathetic spiritual leader can be a horror. In fact, few things are more destructive to God's people than when their leaders are apathetic and don't do their jobs. Throughout Israel's history, throughout the Old Testament, in the Bible, we see story after story after story of when the whole nation is led astray because their leaders are apathetic and don't care. So this morning, we're going to continue our study um, in the book of Malachi in chapter 2, and we're going to see God rebuke these apathetic priests who don't really care. And we need to study this, I think, in order to understand how dangerous spiritual apathy can be, not just in us, but in our leaders and to us as a people. And so if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Malachi um, chapter 2. We're going to do almost all of the chapter. We're going to stop at verse 16. We'll finish the rest of it in chapter 3 next week. And we're going to look at three people this morning. We're going to see um, the spiritual apathy of the priests then we're going to look at the effect that it has on the people, and then we'll close by looking at Jesus. Um, so if you would, if you would stand with me um, for the reading of God's Word as we read through chapter 2, 1 through 16. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and that shall be taken away with it. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. And it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was on his mouth. And no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. From the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the covenant of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. 
Did he not make them one with a portion in the spirit of their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in the spirit and do not be faithless. Flower fades and the grass withers, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would come here this morning, that you would show us what your word has to teach us from this old book to your followers very long ago in harsh language. Lord, help us to see what it means. Help us to understand it, not just so that we can learn things, but so that we can grow in our love and affection for you and your word. And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. If you're taking notes in your bulletin, um, as we'll look at the priests first, our point number one is that the priests are apathetic about their calling. The priests are apathetic about their calling. We saw some of this last week when we looked at chapter one, where all of Israel is really apathetic in their worship. They were offering these polluted sacrifices and the priests were allowing it. So in chapter 2, God continues looking at the priests, but here he's focused more on their apathy about their calling and their jobs, because it seems like the priests are apathetic about everything that is involved. They don't really care about what God has called them to do, and as a result, God rebukes them. Verse 1, and now, O priest, take this command, or this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name. So let's break it down. First we see, right, the priests, they're not listening. It says, you will not listen. They're not listening to God's voice. They're not listening to His Word. They're not obeying His commandments. I mean, the job of a priest is to listen to God, right, and then to teach the people and teach us how we are to listen. But they don't care. They're not listening. They're also not taking it to heart to give honor to my name. They're violating the third commandment we talked about on Wednesday, right? They, above all people, should be honoring God's name. Their job is to teach the people how to honor God's name, and yet they don't care. And God says that their apathy at their jobs has not gone unnoticed. Okay, usually it's easy to tell if you're working with somebody who really doesn't care about their job. They stand out, don't they? I mean, if they're just apathetic, they're going through the motions, they're doing the bare minimum, I mean, how many of you would be happy to work with somebody and be your coworker if that's what they're doing while you're having to do more? Wouldn't you want to discipline them in some way, especially if they were your employee, or fire them or get rid of them? Well, God has had enough of the priest's apathy. And the rest of verse 2 says to the Lord of hosts, Then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I've already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. God says, I'm going to curse you. And if you would have been listening, this wouldn't surprise you. You would already be paying attention. Because every priest should know the curses of God like the back of their hand. You can find them in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. The priest should know them frontwards and backwards. The curses, they're, they're listed. I won't give them all of, to you, but they're things like famine and being exiled out of the land. Something that Israel just got back from. So they should know the curses. And the curses are already happening because of their disobedience. But there's some specific curses God wants to mention here. In verse 3, he says, Behold, I will rebuke your offering. Or the Hebrew word here, it's seed. 
So there's a couple options what this could mean. Now, this could be he's cursing the seed of the land, which if you study, if you look at Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, it'll say one of the curses is he will curse the seed of the land. That when you go to harvest time, you won't find very much. I'll let the locusts and famine take your crops, and the harvest will be weak. Or this could also be God cursing the seed of their descendants, or their sons, which we've seen God do, like the high priest Eli in 1 Samuel. He was an apathetic priest, and his son were apathetic priests, and God cursed both him and his sons and their seed. I think God has both curses in mind here. I think he's going to curse the land like he has before, and I think he's also going to curse the priests and their sons if they do not repent. The rest of verse 3 is really gross. Um, but those of you who have to deal with livestock, maybe you'll appreciate it. He says, Behold, I will break your seed and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Now, in case you're grossed out by the Bible talking about dung, I have some good news. Um, the word is not actually describing feces. But I also have some bad news. Um, it's worse and maybe a little more gross than you think. Because um, the word, it describes the entrails, the intestines, and all of the bodily waste of the animals. Right? So they sacrifice these animals, and they're doing this all day long for thousands and tens of thousands of people. Okay? And they take much of it, and they sacrifice it. And then all of the leftover stuff, they go and they put in a pile. That is the word he is using here. That pile of dung. The leftovers. And what they're supposed to take with that pile is take it outside of the camp and then burn it. Light it on fire. Okay, can you imagine how awful just that fire would smell? Or that pile? How gross that is. I wouldn't want to go anywhere near it. Okay, well, God says he's going to go, he's going to take their faces, and he's going to shove them in it. He's going to pick up the grossest, most unclean parts of the animal, and he's going to wipe it all over them. Now, there's a purpose behind this. This isn't God just being weird and gross. It's also knowing that touching this would make them unclean. Touching this would make them unable to serve as priests. Especially if it's publicly and they can't hide it and everyone can see that this is happening. And God does this so that their outside appearance would match what's inside of their hearts. And you say, okay, this is what you want to be? Well, here. It, would show, it also shows us how revulsive God finds their actions and their apathy about their calling. Verse 4, you will do this so that you know I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. Now, he brings up this covenant with Levi, with the priests. Now, in church, we can talk a lot about covenants. We talk about the Davidic covenant a lot, right? The Abrahamic covenant, God's promises to Abraham, or maybe even the Mosaic covenant, all of the law. But we don't always talk a lot about the Levitical covenant. Um, it can be one that we forget. But the, Le the Levitical covenant, it's a covenant and promise that God made to Levi and to that tribe. And the entire tribe is set apart by God to serve as priests for the nation of Israel. And you can read about this covenant. It's really the main place we see it established is in Numbers 25. It's another point in time where God's people had turned away from God. They're worshiping other gods. They're worshiping them publicly. They're worshiping Baal. And they're marrying the worshipers of other gods and bringing the idols into the camp. But one name, one man named Phinehas, he stands up and he shows zeal for God's holiness and righteousness. And because of his faithfulness, and his lack of apathy, God blesses him, and he makes a covenant with him. It says, okay, you and your descendants and your whole tribe, they are going to be priests with me forever. In verse 5, he says, my covenant with him, it was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him, and it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. 
Numbers 25.12, it describes this covenant as being a covenant of peace. Malachi is intentionally trying to remind these apathetic priests of their heritage, the kind of men that they should be instead of what they are. They should be priests who fear God. They should be priests who stand in awe of God's name and who don't allow anyone to besmirch it. Verse 6, he describes again how the faithful priest should be, what their calling is supposed to be. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrongs found on his lips. It's the priests, they're called to teach God's people. They don't get to teach whatever they want to. They don't get to teach just what people want to hear. They have to teach the truth. That falseness, lies, vagueness, and deception, those things should never be found on their lips. It says, and he walked with me in peace and uprightness. The calling of a priest is to live a life with God. It's to live a life filled with righteousness and peace. They can't just teach about holiness and teach what you should be doing. They should also be doing and living it. We've all, unfortunately, seen spiritual leaders who talked a lot about what we should be doing and then didn't actually do it themselves. Continues and says, and he turned many from iniquity, the calling of a priest of a spiritual leader is to call people to repent. It's to turn them away from their sins and to call them back to grace. But these apathetic priests, they've themselves turned towards sin. And they're leading people in a parade of sin and right down to judgment. Seven, the, the lips of a priest, they should guard knowledge. And, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. These priests, they're called to be messengers of God, should teach people how we're to live, and they're supposed to guard doctrine and theology and not allow people to get off track. When these apathetic priests have failed in eight, we see, but all of them, this doesn't describe them because they have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instructions. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi says the Lord of hosts. These priests have failed in their calling. Instead of turning away from their sin, they have turned away from God. They've turned away from the ancient paths, as Jeremiah 6 says. Instead of the ancient paths of their faithful ancestors and their sin is causing other people to stumble. They're polluting and corrupting the covenant with God. And what are the consequences of this apathy? In verse 9, So I will make you despised, and abased before all the people, in so as much as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. That partiality meaning they teach what they want to teach, not what God's Word says. So God is going to embarrass them, just as they have embarrassed Him in His name. And they will face punishment. And the punishment will be a just one, just as much as they've deviated from their calling. God will deviate in His blessing. And so Malachi, he comes down hard on the priests, and for good reason. Because those who lead God's people are always held to a higher standard, and they must be. And the consequences for apathetic spiritual leaders is deadly. For all, again, we, we've all seen and felt the pain of leaders who fell in sin. And we've seen the effect that it has on churches and those who don't know Jesus and the kingdom of God and His witness. And this apathy, it's contagious. Because apathetic spiritual leaders are going to lead to people who are spiritually apathetic. So let's look at the consequences of the pre-spiritual apathy. In point number two, we see now that the people are apathetic about the covenant. So the people are apathetic about the covenant. The priests were apathetic about their calling, and now the people are apathetic as well. Priests don't care about their own calling. They don't care about the Levitical covenant. So why should the people care about any of God's covenants, any of His promises, any of His commands, anything that He has asked them to do? 
section begins reminding them of the covenant in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? It reminds them that God is their Father. That God is the God of their fathers. That's why they say God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That He is the one who fashioned them out of dust. That their God is the one who plucked Abraham out of obscurity and made him infamous. This and more that God, their Father, their Creator has done for them. And yet, they're faithless. And notice too how Malachi frames his accusation, how he says this is something that we have done. Why are we faithless to one another? He says their whole nation corporately has been faithless, not just to each other, but to the covenant and the promises that they've made to God. Verse 11, Judah has been faithless and the abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So what is the faithlessness and the abomination, as Malachi says, that Israel has committed? Well, they've married the daughters of foreign gods. Now, throughout the Bible, um, the law repeatedly warns about marrying other nations, marrying those who worship other gods. Now, some wrongly interpret this command as if God is encouraging racism or nationalism and saying people shouldn't mix. That has nothing to do with not mixing peoples, but it's about not mixing gods. Because foreigners, refugees, and other nations were always welcome to come into the people of God, but they have to worship Yahweh. After all, many of the women in Jesus' genealogy and story are foreign women who came and married into God's people, but they worshiped His God. This is why God is so angry, because Israel once again has ignored the command. They're marrying women of other nations who have not come to worship God, but are bringing their own gods. And so they're going to worship those gods too. This is why God is so angry in verse 12. Now may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the lords of hosts. God says, okay, if you want foreign gods in your life so much, um, go. You can go find them. Pack your bags. Get out. Leave the people of God. Don't dare to show up for worship with your sacrifice, having just sacrificed to another god. And doesn't want them to think they can worship God on the Sabbath and then worship their idols during the week. God wants all of their worship. He is a jealous and a zealous God. In verse 13, he says, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So God's not finished. He has another problem with these apathetic people. They're acting like they don't understand what the problem is. Okay, they're weeping and crying and throwing themselves on the altar at the temple and saying, oh, why is God not blessing us? Why are these curses happening? They're daring to go around groaning. And they're talking to other people like, I just don't understand why God allows so much evil in the world. Why doesn't he listen to his people? What has God done? I thought he was so good. They're like somebody who is openly having an affair. And their spouse knows they're having an affair. And then they go and complain to their spouse and say, man, why are you giving me such a cold shoulder and being rude? How could you do this? This is so inconsiderate. That's what Israel is doing together. They are just going and flaunting their adultery with other gods and then daring to say, well, well God, why, why are you have a problem with this? Verse 14, but you say, well, why does he not? He says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless. 
though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God tells them exactly why he's not answering their prayers. He tells them exactly why their sacrifices are unacceptable. It's because God saw what they did to their wives. It's not enough that the, the Israelites seem to be apathetic about the covenant. It's not just that they are marrying foreign women and worshiping their gods, but it appears that they've been married before. So God was witness to their marriage vows, and he sees you have abandoned your previous wife. You've abandoned the wives who are a part of the covenant, who are worshiping God's people. And God is not going to hear their worship because of how they have wronged their wives. Now, 1 Peter 3, 7, the New Testament tells us something similar. It tells husbands to be careful and live with your wives in an understanding way, or God will not hear your prayers. God won't hear the prayers of husbands who abuse their wives. God tells us he won't hear the prayers of husbands who mistreat their wives. God will not hear the prayers of men who leave their wives for someone younger or for some, any other ungodly reason. Verse 15, he says, does he not make them one with a portion of the spirit of their union? God reminds them he is the one who made this marriage covenant. And since Adam and Eve, God has made each couple one. He is the one who unites us. It's not some piece of paper in any courthouse. But what is God after in marriage? He tells us in 15, what is the one God was seeking? Godly offspring. Not just that they would have children who worship God, but the goal is that their marriage would result in holiness, that they would make each other holy, that their children would grow in worship of the God of Israel. But their apathetic marriages are leading to offspring who worship other gods. So he says, so guard yourselves in the spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who doesn't love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in the spirit and do not be faithless. God doesn't want them to be so apathetic about their marriage vows and their covenant. They are to be faithful. They're to guard themselves, to guard their own marriages and keep the promises they made before God. He says those who are divorcing and abandoning their wives cover their garments with violence. Okay, now why does he say this? I mean, he's using this strong language because to divorce a woman at this time in history really was to do violence against her. It's to leave her in a completely dangerous and helpless position, especially if she is an older woman. Because women are dependent on the men around them to survive. They don't have any other way. You can remember the story of Ruth and Naomi, how difficult it was for them to make it. And how miraculous it was that there happened to be a righteous man who was willing to care for them, just so that they could eat let alone be willing to marry Ruth, even though it would do damage to his own name and harm him. And so God condemns divorce here partially because it's an act of violence against us women. Now, it doesn't mean that all divorce today is wrong and there are good, um, I think even biblical reasons to get divorced, like if your spouse is abusive or if they are sexually unfaithful. Um, but because you want to marry a younger woman who worships other gods is not a valid reason, is what God says. And God sees it. Now, there's a lot, a lot of talk about marriage and, and divorce here, um, a lot more than I wanted to preach about this morning, but we've got to preach the text, um, at least I think so. So I think we have to teach true instruction, not just whatever I want to. Um, but I don't want you to miss the significance of this, especially if you are single or if you are widowed or if you have been divorced before, because this passage in their apathy, it's not ultimately about the marriage covenant. It's not ultimately about what they have done to their spouses. It's that they do not value the covenant to God. So they don't value those promises. Because throughout the prophets, okay, their relationship to God is often described as a marriage covenant. You see this especially in the book of Hosea. Hosea is probably the most obvious one. 
And so the prophets will use the language of faithfulness and adultery. Their promise to follow and obey God is like marriage vows. It is a marriage covenant. And so when they violate those, when they go and worship other gods, God often calls it, you are committing adultery against me. Because that's what it is. And so the promises that they made to their spouses, they're significant because they're meant to reflect their own faithfulness to God. The real problem isn't that people are getting divorced. It's not even that they're marrying foreign women who worship other gods. The problem is that they do not care about their promises to God. They're doing whatever they want, doing whatever will make them happy, and they're going to worship God maybe whenever they get around to it. And that's a problem. That part's still a problem today, isn't it? And so the question for us is, you know, will we be faithful? Will we be faithful to God in our lives? Do we care about His ways and His commands? Will we follow and obey His commands in our relationships, whether we are married or whether we are not? Or are we going to be apathetic? Now, there's so much apathy everywhere. I mean, it's all over Israel and Malachi's day. Um, I still think it's all over our nation even today. But so what's our hope? This is kind of depressing and dark passage. Who can deliver um, us apathetic people from apathetic spiritual leaders? Well, the answer is Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. Point number three, Jesus is faithful in calling and covenant. Jesus is faithful in calling and covenant. I want you to see, what I want you to see this morning, um, I don't want to give you a list of just things that we've got to do and be. Um, instead, I wanted to try and show you how this passage here tells us about Jesus. The first thing we can see is a reminder when Jesus is faithful in his calling. He is nothing like these priests at all. And Jesus isn't just a faithful priest. He's better than any high priest. It's largely what the book of Hebrews is about, if you have not read it before. And he fulfills his role as priest faithfully and fully. And see all the ways. Just look at all the things that they were supposed to do and see how Jesus does them. Look, he always listens to God's command. And took it to heart. Jesus always listened and obeyed God and God's laws, even when it didn't make sense to his own disciples. Even when his own disciples are saying, no, Jesus, let's not do that. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm listening to God. And he always gave honor to God's name. He even, he taught us when we pray that we begin our prayers by saying what? Hallowed be your name. And Jesus always taught. He taught with true instruction. He never lied. He never said anything wrong. He never taught the people to go astray. He always taught them the truth. And not just the truth, but he never even misspoke. I misspeak a lot. It's a danger when you have to talk a lot. You start to say things and then someone, did you say that? Oh, I did. I did not mean to say that. Let me take that back. I apologize. Jesus never had to do that because he always taught true and he always taught accurately and he always taught exactly what God wanted him to say. He never accidentally said anything wrong. And Jesus always, he walked with God in peace and in righteousness. He walked in peace even when the religious leaders around him were walking in war and opposition and trying to kill him. Jesus walked in peace. He walked in peace and he taught us to turn the other cheek. He himself turned his other cheek as he was being beaten on the road to the cross. As he was blindfolded when he was slapped in the temple. For daring to insult another apathetic high priest, he didn't slap back. Even when he was beaten half to death by Romans, when he was silent and blindfolded, and they hit him and said, prophesy, tell us who hit him, he still walked in peace. And he did. He turned many from iniquity. 
because sinners loved to be around Jesus. The prostitutes, tax collectors, even those who were possessed by demons, they loved Jesus and they wanted to be with him. And it wasn't just because he was loving and he was kind, but there was something about Jesus that helped people turn from their sins and see that there was a better way. And the lips of Jesus, they preserved knowledge. And men always sought instruction from his mouth. Man, crowds followed Jesus everywhere he went. Not just because he did miracles, but because he taught the truth. They recognized, hey, his teaching, it's not like the scribes. His parables are nothing like the Pharisees. He seems to teach as one with authority. He teaches as one with divine wisdom. And unlike the priests and the people, Jesus, he never turned aside from the path. He didn't turn aside in the desert. And he spent 40 days being tempted. He didn't turn aside in the garden. Even when he was asking God, is there any other way than this? He still said, but your will, not mine. He followed God's path all the way to the cross that brought us redemption. And Jesus, he was made abased and despised before all people. Not as a punishment for his own sins, but as a punishment for ours and for these priests. He endured our punishment on the cross to bring us redemption. His naked body was broken on a tree so that we could be remade. And his blood ran red so that we could be washed white as snow. Jesus was completely faithful in his calling, and he still is faithful even now. Right now, he fulfills his calling as our high priest. He stands at the right hand of God in the thrones of the heavens. And daily, what does he do? He intercedes on our behalf, and he prays for us. And he will be faithful to the very end of the age, the end of time. And Jesus is faithful in calling and in covenant. The reason God takes marriage so seriously is that throughout the Bible, um, because it's a symbol of the gospel, it's a symbol of God's faithfulness to his people. I mentioned this before, right? So the prophets, they describe Israel over and over as committing adultery, as running out on God, as sleeping around, doing whatever it is that they want to do. But all the time, even though the people of God are an unfaithful spouse, Jesus remains faithful to the covenant. Jesus is faithful to his promises, even when we are not. Jesus is like a man who's faithful to his wife, even as she's committing adultery, even if she continues to have affairs when confronted, even if she moves out of the house and does whatever she wants, even though everyone else just tells the man, man, just let this marriage die. You just got to divorce her and move on. Even though everyone tells him this is, this is easily justified, no one would blame you. Even though everyone tells him to move on, he would stay faithful to his vows. That is what Jesus does for us. Even when the bride of Christ is unfaithful, even when we are apathetic day in and day out, even when we give Jesus reason after reason after reason to throw us away or all the justification in the world to divorce us and find a new people, Jesus remains faithful. And Jesus promises to save us. And his salvation, his promises, his gospel, his redemption, it does not depend on our faithfulness to the covenant. It depends on Jesus' faithfulness. Because it depended on ours, we would all be lost forever. And our salvation, it does not depend on our works or our merits. Our salvation depends on the faithfulness of Jesus to save sinners. And so the next time you hear the enemy whisper in your ear, hey, are are you sure you're saved? Don't look at your own life for evidence. Look to the faithfulness of Jesus because Jesus is faithful. Because even when we are faithless, he is faithful for he cannot deny himself.
as 2 Timothy 2.13 reminds us. So in summary, where have we been? Well, the priests are apathetic about their calling, and the people are apathetic about their covenant, but Jesus is faithful in calling and in covenant. So rest today in the faithfulness of Jesus and the faithful priest who is our only hope in life and death. We close us in prayer, invite our worship team to come up and lead us one more time in song. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, thank you that even when we are faithless, you are faithful. Lord, that even when we are faithless later today, you will be faithful to us. That your grace and your mercy is never ending. It is a well that never runs dry. And it is open to any sinner who would come and drink, not because of anything that we do, but just because of your grace and your mercy. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Would you help us to rest in your faithfulness? Lord, would, would staring and gazing at the wonder of your mercy and your love warm our hearts? Would it cause us to turn from our sins and to come to you? Would you encourage our faith? Would you help those who are stuck in the darkness of depression? Not because we have to pull ourselves out, but because you are faithful. You're the only one who is. We pray all these things in your holy and your precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our Savior and sing about his blessed assurance one more time. Amen. I want to read our benediction from the book of Numbers, the promise of the blessing of God. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. Go in peace.